Hi everyone, good evening, welcome back to the fifth day of our 10 Days 10 Mahler Symphonies project here at Attention to Detail. Today we're actually going to do not the fifth but the sixth symphony. As I mentioned on the on the breakdown of the fourth, we might jump around a little bit here, but have no fear, we will cover all of the 10 symphonies over the course of, of 10 days. And I thought, who better to bring in to to join us than my fabulous co-host who's uh, calling into the pod. Hannah, how's it going? It's going good. How are you, Jacob? I'm good. It's it's kind of weird that you are calling into this podcast probably like 300 feet away from me. Yeah, we live in the same apartment complex, different buildings, but we're nearby each other. Yeah, but I think... You know, setting a good example for people to uh, socially distance. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're trying to be healthy here. I feel like both of us are probably okay at the moment, but you never you can never be too careful, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I keep hearing stories that like millennials, like ourselves, are asymptomatic carriers of COVID nineteen. Right. So we could like we could and and where we live. I don't know if you've been keeping up to date on it, but we live in Indianapolis, and there's, I think, 19 cases in the county that we're currently in. <laughs> Is there? I, I yeah. I am not nearly as up to date as you are. Clearly, I did not know that, but <laughs> yeah. So there's 19 cases within our vicinity, and I think there's been two. I hope that I'm not wrong. So, so no one that listens, please don't call me out <laughs> on it too harshly if I'm wrong. But I think that there have been two deaths in in our county which is really sad but i'm not sure that's absolutely accurate i should i should stop spreading misinformation if that's not true but that's what i saw today on like covid 19's website interesting all right well let's let's uh stay safe as same goes for all of our listeners don't want to contract that thing i think it's it's a good message to all of our millennial listeners to not uh Despite potentially being asymptomatic, don't get don't get older people sick from uh, negligence. So exactly, stay in and listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, th- listen. There's plenty of content. So uh, content to last you through the entire quarantine. So, anyways, uh, everything else good? Yeah, it's it's going. I mean, I do feel like I'm going to get anxious throughout this this um, this quarantine, but it's it's going. I mean, I'm getting a lot of work done. That's nice. I'm glad that I still have work to be doing, and it's raining in Indy right now, but it was really nice the other day, so I've gone out for nice, long uh, solo walks, staying six feet away from people, but nice. yeah, it's I'm finding ways to spend the time, that's for sure. Good. Good. Well, same. I went for a little walk today in the rain, even, which was a bad decision. But with that being said, let's let's jump in today to the Sixth Symphony. Um, you want to stick around for uh, the breakdown? Yeah, I definitely want to stick around. Um, I'm really excited about the hammer in the last movement. Good. I'm going to be making dinner, though, while we're on the phone just because it's dinner time and I'm hungry. So I'm going to be making some tacos while 
Jacob, you, you can Excellent. So I will, I'll break it down. You hop in when you hear something that uh, piques your interest, and we will, we will go from there. What kind of tacos are you making? Um, veggie, black bean, and, and uh, bell pepper. Excellent. Are you switching to my uh, plant-based diet that I've been promoting to people? Um, I don't know if I'm switching to your plant-based diet. I just don't buy meat when I go to the grocery store. So, ah. yeah. Excellent. So you're, you're nearly there. I shouldn't call it my plant-based diet. I should call it <laughs> a plant-based diet to which I am trying to subscribe. But excellent. Yeah. I'm glad to hear. Maybe I'll eat the same thing tonight. Yeah, maybe you should. I, though I'm adding cheese on top of mine, which I know that you don't like, and I know that it's not plant based. So yeah, that's that's one that's of the easy. That's one of the easy things about being plant based is if you don't like cheese, all the that's that's one thing that you can cut pretty easily. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, let's dive right into the sixth symphony uh, today. The sixth symphony is, for me at least, honestly, I think the most challenging. Mahler symphony for me to wrap my head around. It's, it's I think, the toughest nut of these symphonies to crack. Um, in, the, in the three symphonies from this period, five, six, and seven, which are often grouped together, these are three symphonies of Mahler's that have no singer, no text, no singer or singers. If you remember the last three symphonies we broke down, two, three, and four, they all had either a choir or a singer or both, and text and pretty explicit programs. Fifth, sixth, and seventh are all really absolute symphonies in, in, a, in a much more it's stronger sense of the word than what we had before. And so really we're dealing more with, with musical elements um, here. That's actually why I wanted to start with the sixth, is because... The sixth, in some ways, this is going to be a very different breakdown from the first four. Not so much about the narrative, the plot, we might say, or the philosophical ideas behind this piece, but more about the musical techniques that Mahler uses and more about the form, because these are really, really important things to to absolute music, music like Beethoven symphonies, Brahms symphonies. And so the type of analysis that we would apply to those types of symphonies is going to be more applicable to this symphony than some of the earlier ones. This one was written in 1903 and 1904, so if you're, if you're following our dates closely, Mahler wrote pretty much every two years he would finish a symphony, and so the fifth falls in between there. Um, but some people also, if we want to attach something of a program to this symphony... Some people hear this symphony as a really autobiographical piece in a certain way. And it comes at a really, really important moment in Mahler's life. He was also writing a song cycle called Kinder Totenlieder at the time on the death of children, which was, it's a really morose um, subject, but it was a set of poems that he was fascinated by and he was determined to set this to music. His wife, Alma, did not like this idea. She was a little superstitious, as one might be inclined to be. And, and she didn't, they had uh, one young daughter and another on the way, and she didn't like the idea of Mahler writing songs about on the death of children. And then Mahler also decided to write this 
tragic, tragic symphony. The subtitle of this symphony is is tragic, and it it seems like he was preoccupied with these themes of of death, of tragedy, and especially the death of children. And Mahler was always a believer that art. There's a quote of him. I'm I'm not going to give the actual quote because I can't exactly remember it. But there's some, he said something about the idea that great artists foresee the future essentially in their art. There's kind of some sort of divine connection that allows them to see events that are going to happen in the future. And whether you're a spiritual person or not to believe in something like that, in this case, it's pretty remarkable because in this piece, as Hannah already alluded to, there are going to be three hammer blows very late in the piece that are representative of three blows existential blows to our kind of tragic hero. We'll get to that in the last movement. But three, and the last blow finally fells the hero and eventually kills him. And three really, really monumental things in Mahler's life happened shortly after he wrote this symphony. The first was that his older daughter died shortly after he wrote this symphony and after he completed this song cycle on the death of children. Really creepy that that happened really almost i mean that he was able to in a way foresee that that alma was worried about him writing this piece and then that actually happened then he was forced to resign from his post at the vienna state opera and and we may maybe we'll talk about that on a future pod and then he developed a heart condition that would become something of the subject of his ninth symphony and eventually lead to his demise, and that that's what would eventually kill him. And so he had these three heavily traumatic events in his life, the third that would actually lead to his death, and it's incredibly prophetic that he wrote this symphony right before the first of those three, the death of his eldest daughter, actually happened. So a kind of future autobiographical piece, but one that actually was realized in a in a really kind of eerie, spooky way. So that's the setting for this symphony. And as we break this down, I'm going to spend by far the most time on the finale, which is a gigantic movement. That's the one that's really, really tough to crack. And so we'll spend the most time on that, and we'll try to go a little quickly through the first three. But as I mentioned, there are a few elements of uh, musical analysis that we're going to want to have available to us when we do this breakdown. One thing that's going to be really important, and I just want to briefly review it, is the idea of sonata form. I've mentioned it already, but let's let's just explain what that is. We have three sections. Let's, let's say we have five sections, usually. Introduction, that is usually considered outside of the sonata form. Then the three sections of the sonata form, exposition, development, recap. In those sections, in the exposition, we usually get two themes, contrasting themes. In the development, we develop those themes. In the recap, we recapitulate those themes. They come back. And then sometimes we have a coda. So I want us to remember, try to remember that form of a piece because that's going to be hugely important to the first and last movements of this symphony. And then the other thing that we're going to do a lot of today that we haven't done quite as much of before is thematic 
analysis, if we might want to call it, or just what we need to really be on the lookout for is small musical ideas or themes that will come back again and again. And we've kind of been doing this already, but this is especially important in such an absolute piece of music that has less of a narrative. It's the themes that are going to get developed and altered and come back and all these things less than uh, more so than the plot because we don't really have a specific plot to cling to here so with that we're going to start with the first movement as i mentioned the first movement is in sonata form and it's actually in some ways a very conventional sonata form movement and so it's it's easier for us to break down form wise we even get a repeat we don't have any introduction and we don't really have any uh, coda, we, 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 excuse me, we do have a coda, but we, we don't have any introduction, and the exposition, which is standardly repeated in the sonata form, is in fact repeated, so we hear it twice to really ice these themes in our head. So let me play for you the opening, which introduces the first theme, and you'll notice right off the bat, one of the notable elements of this symphony is throughout, and especially, we get it right off the bat here at the beginning of the symphony, it's a very martial, very militaristic, march-like subject that we start with. And this is going to be actually a lot of this symphony is going to feel military, march-like, steady, imposing. Here's the beginning of the first movement. So there we hear the opening, really militaristic, aggressive theme. And it's the other thing that we're going to focus a little bit on today, more than we have been on previous breakdowns, are the keys. And again, we don't need to be able to recognize these keys so much as it's important when keys come back or return or go from major to minor or something like that. So I will tell you all the important keys, but just know that that, that signifies something really important to, to Mahler and to this, this music. Um, we then hear, I want to play for you right after this first theme ends, we hear one of the most important moments in the movement, which will come back many, many times. Maybe the single most important idea in this whole piece so listen really carefully to the, the beginning of this clip. Then what follows is, is this kind of chorale-like theme. But at the very beginning of this clip, we're going to hear something that's going to be super, super important. So there's two things about the beginning of that clip that I really want us to remember. So we hear this rhythm, bum, bum, ba-bum, bum, bum. 
that rhythm, we're going to want to commit that rhythm to memory. It will come back probably a hundred times. It's this rhythm. It signals the kind of, again, militaristic martial nature of this piece, but also kind of a... It's, it's, it's connected with this other idea that we hear right here. Very simple idea of... What that is is A major going to A minor. And the idea of going major to minor in the most simple terms, happy to sad, triumphant to tragic, this major to minor inflection is really going to be the single most important idea of this entire piece. So listen for that figure. You'll hear hundreds of times in this piece. That falling idea that turns it from major to minor. So then, as is as we might expect from a sonata, we hear a second theme. This theme was meant to depict Mahler's wife, Alma. It's an interesting... I'm, I'm surprised, actually. He wrote several musical depictions of Mahler. This one is very... It's marked with the heading Schwungvoll, which means kind of... It's hard to describe in English, but kind of swinging, folksy a little bit. Not something that you would necessarily associate with a love theme, but it's very, it's, it's a little up and down, maybe a, a little clue into what he thought of his wife. But anyways, here's the, here's the second theme of this first movement. So we hear the second theme, we then get sort of a epilogue to the exposition, remember the first part of the sonata, and then in most performances, sometimes performers elect to leave this out, but in most performances you go back and repeat all of that music again, so it really gets inked into your mind. And then we get to the development section, as we've, we've talked about development sections in the past because development sections usually are where Mahler takes the most liberty and most of the action occurs. The beginning of this development is very standard. We hear a lot of kind of eerie, uh, dance macabre-esque sounds, which we were talking about, a little bit like the f uh, second movement of the fourth symphony, very spooky sounds as he develops these themes. But then we get to a passage... Uh, in the middle of the development where we hear the instrument of the cowbell for the first time off in the distance. And this instrument is used, this, this symphony uses a ton of percussion instruments, and one of the important ones is the cowbell, which is to, it's supposed to evoke this kind of music from a distance, this nostalgic, this otherworldly type of music. 
And we'll follow this cowbell through the symphony as it comes at many important places in the form. So let me play for you that first passage with the cowbell in the middle of the development. So I let that play for a little longer than normal just to show you one thing, which is it, it, this is more of the the direction that we need to think in this symphony, the type of musical transformations, themes that Mahler is playing with. In the beginning of this exposition, we heard the violins play this idea. And then it keeps going but we hear that figure. And at the very end of this passage that we just listened to, the cowbell passage, we hear this very tender theme. He's flipped that idea right on its head, so this is what we call the inversion. And by flipping it, it suddenly becomes this this beautiful, tender theme that we hear introduced uh, towards the end of this, this interesting cowbell passage. So then we continue developing some more of our themes. And another cool thing about this movement that Mahler does that many composers prior to Mahler also were fond of doing is he kind of blends the recap into the end of the development, so we almost don't realize we are in the recapitulation until we're already there. And so I want to play for you this interesting passage, and again, if you can listen to this idea that I've mentioned already of... Try to see if you can hear how that plays a role in this transition from the development to the recapitulation where we come back to this martial music from the opening of this movement.
so that may be a little tricky to hear, but right before we snap back into the recapitulation, which is in A minor, we hear a brief, brief glimpse, almost what we might consider a, a breakthrough moment, which we've been talking about, into A major. It gets that, that some of that triumphant music there at the end is in A major, this key. And then we go back to A minor for the recapitulation, just like we started the piece. So then, pretty standard recapitulation, we hear the same two themes over and over again with that falling major-minor thing again in the middle with the don, 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 don. We hear that again. And then we get a coda, as I mentioned earlier. The coda is a little interesting in this movement. It kind of acts as more of a development. Again, we we alter some of these themes that we've been hearing throughout the movement. Sometimes codas do do this process of kind of recycling these themes just a little bit more. And then we, we build up to this uh, fantastic ending to the movement that I want to play for you. And we actually, th- the music really builds as it's messing with these two themes and we end in A major. So it feels like a really triumphant in a way ending to this movement. That's our goal, to get from A minor to A major. And so I'll play for you the end, this boisterous, still military, but really boisterous, triumphant ending to the first movement, which which gets us to the promised key of A major. That's how we end the first movement. Uh, Mahler was often criticized in this piece specifically for being overly uh, kind of indulgent with his orchestral forces that he used. As we mentioned, there's this huge hammer that plays later, but there's also tons of percussion, tons of players. And if there's one criticism of Mahler that I think is, is potentially valid, it may be that one at times. This is a fantastic ending to this movement, but I think often Mahler was able to achieve everything that he looked for, triumphant music with with slightly subtler means. Maybe this is just my ignorance, but it feels at times that this piece hits you over the head with what it's trying to say more than coaxes you into to finding it for yourself. But one one person's interpretation, and I'm open to... Uh, criticisms and suggestions on how I can refine my interpretation to uh, 
to better suit this this piece. But with that, let's continue on to the second movement. I don't mean to do any discredit to this piece. It's a phenomenal piece, and, and I'm very much enjoying... I enjoyed the day breaking it down. I learned a ton about uh, especially the finale, which is coming, of phenomenally interesting last movement. <clears throat> but before we get there, we have to talk about the second and the third movements, which are... I think my two favorite movements of this symphony, and interestingly, not always performed in the same order. Mahler gave conflicting editions of this piece and seemed to go back and forth in his own mind as to where the second and third movements should be placed. The second movement, as I'm going to place them today, is a scherzo. The third is a slow movement, um... But it's an interesting choice that the conductor ends up having to make of what order do you perform these works in and these these movements. And I actually changed my mind uh, today about what I personally think about this after after diving into this symphony more. I was always more in the camp of, as you'll hear, the second movement that I'm going to play for you now, the scherzo movement, starts also in A minor, very, very similar music to how we start the first movement. And I always used to think I would like to put this third with the slow movement in between to almost give this sense of you get respite from the third movement, but then you're almost beaten down with the tragedy of this piece, the 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 military nature of this piece, because exactly the same music comes back in this scherzo, it's like, oh, we didn't even achieve anything through this third movement. That was just a, a brief moment of daydreaming, but now we're back to reality. Now I've changed my mind because now I have a feeling that this slow third movement really prepares the tragedy to come of the last. But again, an interesting thing for all of our listeners to think about what order of these movements you prefer. I'm going to play the opening of... Uh, in fact, Hannah, I'm curious to get your take after we um, listen to some of the second and the third. So I'll play the opening of the second, but but keep an ear out for how this movement starts and also how the uh, third movement starts, because I'm curious to know what, what you end up thinking. Yeah, nice. Okay. Okay, so here's the beginning of the second movement, or the scherzo movement, I should say, which sounds very similar to the beginning of the first movement. So a very similar opening to the first movement, also in A minor, as I mentioned. Now, I'm going to play for you a moment just a little bit later, and I imagine you'll recognize it. Keep an ear out for for this moment. As I mentioned, it comes back many, many, many times over the course of this, uh, this piece.
So there I let it play for a sec because actually we transition from the scherzo section to the trio section. And like a lot of scherzos, as we've mentioned, scherzos unfold. We have a scherzo and a trio and then a scherzo again, A-B-A. Sometimes, in, as in this piece, we have A-B-A-B-A. So we just got into the B section of this piece. But again, right before that, we heard our favorite... our major minor again. Um, we hear a modification also of this scherzo is now in triple meter. Bum, 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 bum. And we hear that same rhythm. Bum, 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 bum. But changed to fit this triple meter. And then we go into the trio of this, this uh, second movement. Really interesting trio, one of my all-time favorite trios that Mahler wrote. He gave a quote about this, this oboe melody that we hear, which is an interesting kind of arrhythmic melody. It alternates between triple and double meter. And Mahler said, this is like the arrhythmic playing of children staggering, staggering through the sand. So we, despite not having a real program to this piece, we get children's music here and I think that's really poignant and important because as we've mentioned the death of children is something that Muller was thinking about and informs some of the tragedy of this this symphony and so no coincidence I don't think that we get children's music here interestingly we get a, a classic Mahler marking here in the in the tempo or the character marking he writes Altvaterish, which actually like translates to grandfatherly, and so of course classic Mahler, we get the ultimate confusing, ironic marking. This is supposed to be somewhat grandfatherly, but it's children's music, so we're left to try to decipher what to make of that. So then, coming out of the trio, I want to play for you this section as we get back into the scherzo ABA, as I mentioned, some interesting music that we get here. We get a little interlude of music that we might not expect before going back to the scherzo. So we kind of get a false recap of sorts of, of the scherzo music, and then we slip into this almost amateur Jewish band sounding music again, similar to the first symphony, as we've mentioned before, Mahler was, was culturally Jewish and, and raised Jewish, and so these, these folk traditions, these traditions of folk music permeate so much of his symphonic writing here in an excellent example, but we get this, we get this short interlude, some sort of breakthrough, if we want to call it that, or really just a moment of reflection before going back to the scherzo music. Now I want to play one more key moment of the uh, 
this this movement for you. Actually, two. Two more key moments. The first, we hear a tam-tam for the first time. And the tam-tam, or the gong, is a universal symbol in in music for for death. And so the tam-tam plays a really important role. If you want a fun project, you, you can open the score of this piece and look at every moment where the tam-tam plays. It always comes at a really important moment in the form. But here's the first one. This is really... Uh, a crucial moment because we hear this this tam tam for the first time, and then we hear the rhythm, the boom, 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 boom again in this triple meter kind of transformation. hear Mahler really stretching the limits of what instruments can do here, playing as low as they possibly can in the tuba and the bassoons. It's very dark, imposing, death-ridden music, and so the, the addition of the tam-tam really adds something to that idea, that rhythmic idea that we have. All of this is very tragedy, death-infused. And then... To close the movement, I want to play for you the very end of the movement because, again, our favorite little idea in this piece comes back, of course, yet again. So this is quieter this time, but again, same idea we hear. Twice to close this to close this movement. So with that we end the second movement again, a picture of some sort of despair. We're ending in A minor now, not A major. We didn't get the triumphant finish that we got in the first movement. And then Either we've already heard the slow movement or we go on to hear the slow movement. One of my all-time favorite movements from Mahler anywhere. A beautiful, beautiful slow movement. There's actually not so much formally or analytically to talk about. I'll, I'll play a few spots. But really, this is just a fantastically beautiful movement. The ultimate respite from the tragedy and a lot of the profundity, complexity of the rest of this this symphony. This really unfolds like m more of a song. And so I'll play for you the opening. Um, we get kind of two main themes in this uh, third movement that I want to play for you. And then they, they get recycled 
they come back, but let me play for you the opening of this movement. Beautiful, beautiful music. So we get this lyrical, loving theme to open the movement. Then we get this more kind of elegiac, mournful theme. I want to play for that for you as well. Equally poignant for me as, as the first theme. The first theme is beautiful, but this one is, is heart-wrenching in a way. Here's the second theme. So these two themes get, get developed a little bit by Mahler, uh, transformed slightly. We hear both of them return. And then we get to this, this kind of breakthrough moment. Um, and this breakthrough moment is in E major. If we remember E major, that happened to be the most important key of the fourth symphony for us. That's the key of the breakthrough in the, at the end of the third movement of the fourth, and then the key that we arrive at at the end of the fourth movement, Das Himmlische Leben. So a key that's very important for Mahler, the key of the heavenly child, not the this sadness associated with children, but a really poignant moment that I want to play for you that emerges out of this, uh, this third movement, well, slow movement. And again, in this breakthrough moment, we hear the music of the cowbell again. And so... We, we're supposed to associate this with those other cowbell episodes, but this music from a distance, it's kind of, it signals some sort of breakthrough. Here's this kind of pastoral passage in E major that really evokes that world of the Fourth Symphony.
So after this kind of breakthrough pastoral section, we get the main theme returns again. We hear the elegy theme return again. We kind of hear two rotations of the same material where we get those two ideas again, and we get another breakthrough moment of this pastoral section, a fifth down now in A major, the key that we've been trying to attain in this symphony. Uh, In fact, this, interestingly, this movement is in E-flat major. E-flat major. E-flat major is the furthest key from A major of... It's what we call a tritone away. So it's the ultimate distance away from A major. But somehow in this E-flat major movement, we end up finding A major briefly this key that we've been trying to attain this entire symphony and that's been so important that's been escaping our grasp through this A major, A minor figure. We get it in the second breakthrough, but then again, like so many things in Mahler, this breakthrough dissolves and we go back once again to this song-like music of the opening that swells into this incredibly powerful climax. And I just, I want to play for you uh, towards the end of this movement because this is... I've said it too many times already on these breakdowns. It's it's I'm becoming the boy who cried wolf by saying that these are my favorite passages in Mahler. But I will tell you, this specific stretch of one, two minutes of music, I frequently, frequently listen to uh, just out of sheer love of this, this passage of music because I think it's one of the best he ever wrote. So here's a passage towards the end of this third movement, one of the most beautiful passages of music Mahler or anyone ever wrote.
Yeah, so that's that's one of my all-time favorite passages towards the end of the third movement. So we've we've reviewed the second and the third. Hannah, what do you think? We're going to give you the role of of conductor here for a sec. Would you would you go uh, scherzo intense movement first, uh, or slow movement first, and then come back to the uh, kind of tragedy intense? scherzo after the the slow movement as a listener (laughs) it takes me a while if it's a piece that i am completely new to i love getting through all the intense stuff first (laughs) so so that i can um get into like the full like get fully developed into the listening process and then if we get into a slow movement i love it I love it when it's, like, close to the end. Okay. So, yeah, that's my final answer. Good. I mean, you've... Th- that is my current answer as well, so we agree for the time being, which is which is excellent. Um, unfortunately, I have to tell you, though, we are not particularly close to the end after we end this... Uh, well, for- not, not unfortunately. We've got some great music to go. But what yeah. follows... What follows the third movement is a massive, massive last movement. Um, so let's dive into this this last movement. And again, when talking about this last movement, it's going to be really, really important for us to remember sonata form because we're going to try to grasp the form of this last movement. And it unfolds in this massive, massive sonata form with an introduction, and in addition to an introduction, which we've we, we've learned is a possibility, an introduction and coda, this has both, but also each section of the sonata is actually going to have its own introduction. So we'll get an introduction to the exposition, we'll get an introduction to the development, we'll get an introduction to the recapitulation. So we'll keep in mind... We have five big sections of this movement, and the three main ones, the three sonata sections, have their own big introductions as well. So with that in mind, if you can try to kind of construct some sort of visual roadmap for yourself of this piece, I think that's helpful. So with that in mind, let's listen to the opening of this last movement. This music is going to be incredibly important. You'll recognize some of it. But keep this in mind, because every time you hear this music, it indicates a really important structural landmark in this movement. So here's how the movement, the last movement, opens.
So I failed to mention that that for this movement, just to give us a little context, Mahler did give us a little bit of sort of program information on this movement. He mentioned that this movement is supposed to evoke a tragic hero, whether that's himself or someone else, standing on the highest mountain peak facing eternity. And in a way, it's kind of this idea of facing the ultimate tragedy in life and almost in a fatalistic way, knowing that this is, you're not going to be able to, to face this. So we hear this, this kind of mystical harp moment at the beginning. And then of course we hear our favorite major minor. That's going to play an important role in this piece with our, our favorite rhythm as well. And then we get introduced really interestingly to all of these kind of nuggets or small motifs of ideas, like the bare elements of music that will eventually form themselves into the themes that make up this movement. I let that play for a little while because we hear the horn play what's going to be a very important melody to this movement a little bit later on. But we get the, we get the, the, these kind of bare bones motifs at the beginning, and then they're going to form into these really elaborate themes later on in the movement. So then we, we continue on in this introduction, and I want to play for you the next important moment. We get this kind of chorale moment for the brass. This is after we're introduced to a lot of these nuggets of first themes. We come to this C minor chorale moment. So again, we end with our favorite major minor idea. That chorale music is, is going to be important as well. The thematic idea there is, is, is going to come back. We hear some more beginnings of themes, but not fully formed music again. And then I'll play for you the end of the introduction where we go into the exposition and then we really start the actual sonata of this movement. This is about five minutes and 20 seconds into the movement. I'm, I'm going to give you a bunch of timings so that you can follow this along if you want to, based on Leonard Bernstein's recording with the Vienna Philharmonic. Uh, tempos can vary drastically, so, so if, you're, if you want to go off that specific recording, these timings will be accurate, but in the ballpark of five minutes, 20 seconds on most recordings... This is the passage that you'll hear as we go into the exposition of this, this last movement. 
So we hear another major minor, our favorite rhythm to lead us into this exposition. And then interestingly, the first theme of this exposition, very much like the first movement, very much like the scherzo movement, really martial, really militaristic, almost jagged, interesting choice. It really harkens back to the the ideas from the first two movements if you choose to perform them in that way. So then we get to uh, another, we're in the exposition, we've heard our first theme, we hear a transition where we get a kind of new thematic idea, and I want to play that for you as well, because this will become very important. It's going to be hard to keep all of these themes in our mind, but that's why we're breaking it down here. I will remind you when this comes back, so we've already done the work for you. No work needed, you just sit back and, and enjoy. But here is the kind of transition theme between the two primary themes of this this last movement sonata. this kind of almost delirious, soaring transition-type theme. And then this leads us really interestingly into our secondary, or our second theme of this, this piece. This theme is in D major the first time we hear it. It's at about 8 minutes and 20 seconds in, in the Bernstein recording. And it's derived from, just like our, our first theme was kind of derived from the first movement, first theme, this is derived from the first movement's second theme, the Alma theme that we mentioned, his wife's theme, the kind of Schwungvoll um, swinging theme. Let's listen to the second theme of this, uh, this last movement, and then I'll show you how they're, they're related. play for you first what we heard in the first movement this theme that was the kind of Alma theme and here we hear this idea and then it continues
They're very similar ideas, one derived from the other. So our second theme, just like our first theme, relates back to the first movement. So then we get the de to the development, huge development, going to be incredibly important. And as I mentioned, these sections all have introductions. So first we hear the introduction to the development before we actually start developing those themes that we just mentioned. So let's hear the introduction of the development, which sounds just like the beginning of the symphony, as I mentioned, that kind of mystical harp music. And then we're going to hear a lot of what we heard right at the opening of this movement. So we hear a lot of the same kind of elemental germs of these movements. We get to the actual development where we start developing those themes from the exposition around 11 minutes, 20 or 30 seconds in the Bernstein recording, and I'll play that for you as well. We get a lot of really passionate, frantic development of these themes. Here's that passage to open the development. So after this, we get this passage that shifts to A major, this key that we're trying to attain. It starts developing that secondary, that Alma, Mahler-esque theme. And the music really, really builds. And then we come to the moment we've all been waiting for, the moment, Hannah, you mentioned you've been waiting for as well, the first of three hammer blows. This is a moment that visually is stunning. I encourage you to go on YouTube and watch, search Mahler hammer blow because uh, the, a percussionist needs to use this massive, massive, like 10 foot long hammer and hit this big block of wood. But I will play you that passage now. It's, it's stunning and really both from a visual but also from an oral effect. It, it, signals to you that something immense has happened. And as we mentioned, these are kind of the three blows, the third of which will actually fell our, our tragic hero, maybe Mahler himself. Mm -hmm. This is like one of the most theatrical moments of classical music that I can put my finger on. I think I went down, I was studying Mahler 5, which the ISO was set to do last week, and... All of a sudden, I saw randomly in like a Google search, like Mahler six hammer, and I was like, "What? What is this?" Yeah. And I went down like a thirty-minute rabbit hole. Oh, nice! 
hammer throws. It was such a delightful afternoon of watching all of these. Yeah, so I've been very excited to talk to you about this. Here we go. Here's the first of three. It's, it's a very uh, exciting moment in the piece. And as you mentioned, go watch a little bit of it on, on YouTube. So Hannah, what do you think? Probably not as cool over the phone listening through this electronic device versus seeing it live and hearing a massive hammer crash. <laughs> no, but um, I watched a little bit of um, Bernstein conducting on YouTube earlier before we hopped on the phone and I went straight to find the hammer and actually I like scrolled down in the comments and it was the first comment it said hammer one hammer two hammer no oh, so nice whoever that person was i was like bless you there you go just so, shortcut yeah it just it's so dramatic like to be a percussionist and to like get to do Mahler six that must be such like a an achievement it's for for a percussionist i think it's high pressure and also it's a weird thing <laughs> it's it's one very unique moment in performing where you have to start swinging this massive hammer like a beat yeah. <laughs> a beat before you actually have to play because oh it's so aerobic so yeah the percussionists is, they must be going to the gym and like doing those cowbell lifts and all yeah that. but it's tr- it's difficult to try to time it where you actually yeah. land at the moment you're supposed to land so yeah it's it's quite the thing well yeah, so we have two more of those coming. What follows this hammer blow is a another section in a... We hear this kind of chorale. It, it harkens back to that first chorale that we heard in the introduction, which I mentioned was in C minor. And then we hear some music in A major again, a, a brief peaceful section where we develop that same Alma secondary material. And then we get a short battle scene. So it, again, like some of our other Mahler symphonies, it feels like our tragic hero has entered battle. And this results ultimately, like it does often in Mahler, in this kind of march. Whether it's a death march or not, we're not sure. But let me play for you a little bit of this march music that comes uh, a little later in the development. Uh, yeah, in the, in the development. Here's, here's that march music. this march music we really prominently maybe to give the even more of the impression that this is sort of death music we hear that major minor 
idea over and over and over again. We get another section of A major passionate music, this, this same secondary material. Clearly this has become the material that we're trying to reach at the end of this symphony in A major, and we're making all of these lunges at it. It builds massively, and then let me play for you our moment, the moment that snuffs it all out, our second hammer blow moment. Let's hear that as well, because we just, it's, it's too fun to just skim over these, these hammer blows. So after our second hammer blow, the second huge blow dealt to our hero, we hear music similar to the first hammer blow, again that sort of brass chorale idea, and then we finally come to the recapitulation, and as I've mentioned, this is around 20 minutes in the recording, and as always, we get this signpost that we've entered a new huge formal section, this is... The same stuff that we hear at the opening, we hear at the outset of this recapitulation. But as I mentioned, we get a introduction and then the actual moment of recapitulation. So again, as always, when we hear this music, we hear the major minor, the, the lead rhythm figure, yet again. Our recap has a similar roadmap to our exposition, so we'll skim some of it. We hear that same kind of elemental music that we heard at the beginning of the introduction. We hear those bells off in the distance. But now, instead of that chorale that we heard at the beginning and that we've heard after these hammer blows... We now get this kind of interesting, what's called a grazioso section, that's the, how it's labeled, which means kind of graciously, um, and this is material that is derived from this second theme, this, this Alma theme, and this kind of, so we've cut out the chorale, and we start this secondary theme now in a very different way, almost lighthearted way. This is around 22 minutes, 45 seconds in the, in the Bernstein recording. 
I'll play that for you, and then I'll play for you a passage where this this music continues and builds to a, a kind of huge climax. But first, let's listen to uh, this grazioso passage where we first hear this secondary material again. So we might recognize that theme from from earlier, that, that second theme of the exposition. And then here's where that builds to this, again, A major climax, this, this theme yet again trying to reach A major, the key that we want to eventually make it to, the optimistic key. Here's, here's that moment right before we, we enter the actual recap. Remember, we're still in the introduction of the recap at this, this point. So we get A major for a brief moment, but of course it gets snuffed out, and we come to the recapitulation around 25 minutes in our Bernstein recording, and let's listen to that recapitulation, very similar music to how we started the exposition. If you'll remember, it's that kind of march-like music again that, that harkened back to the very, very beginning of this whole symphony. So now we're in the recapitulation, and instead of uh, getting that middle delirious kind of theme that I, I mentioned, that transition theme, we've replaced it with a sort of another battle scene. Um, it feels like we're really, really struggling against ourselves or against some external force, some tragic force here. And we want to get back to this second theme, this Alma theme, this kind of love theme. But we get to this... We get to this final moment in the in the recapitulation where we don't get that theme. We get this sort of falling, throbbing figure. And I want to play that for you as well, because it's replaced what we were expecting, this 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 moment where we would finally arrive at the end of the recapitulation at what we've been aiming for. Here's that moment. It's passionate, it's it feels somewhat uplifting, but this is not what we were we were aiming for.
So we hear this music, it's almost farewell type of music. It feels like someone saying bye to the world. And then we get our final passage in A major where we hear fragments of the two themes, including fragments of this this secondary theme, what we're grasping so dearly to to get to here at this end, but not the complete thing. It builds and it builds to what almost feels inevitable at this point, the third and final hammer blow that sends us into the the coda of this movement. So let's hear this build up are struggling to reach A major once and for all and having it ultimately snuffed out in the most dramatic and painful fashion. So we hear the music build to that to that last hammer blow. The hammer blow comes, we get this music that starts the the whole movement off, this kind of mystical heart music, and then of course to confirm all of the tragedy we hear once again our our major minor motif with the same rhythm. And then what we get is a short but really poignant coda. Interestingly, I should mention about this third hammer blow. Hannah, you might not like this, but uh, Mahler actually went back in the score and took out this third hammer blow. And so the final edited score from Mahler, some people choose to include it, but the final edited score from Mahler actually only involves two hammer blows. And he felt that the third hammer blow which was supposed to be the one that ultimately downs this this tragic hero, that wasn't necessary because, according to Mahler in his classic kind of enigmatic, poetic fashion, this piece never truly ends. And so to hear the third hammer blow would really be to end this piece, but he took it out, so it deprived us of, of one-third of the, of the pleasure by, by erasing that. I respect it. <laughs> you respect it? I respect it, but I, I enjoy it so much yeah. that I want it. Yeah, whenever I perform this piece, I'm doing it with three hammer blows. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. I support that, too. Good, good. Maybe with the ISO. We'll see. Yeah, I'll cross my fingers for you. Yeah, I'll cross my fingers that we, we come back at some point and, yeah. and salvage Can't a season. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> So then we get to the coda of this piece, one of the most poignant moments. I'll play for you a short passage, 
after this final hammer blow where we hear this kind of epitaph, the the hero has potentially, in theory, died here or is close to death, and we kind of hear his his epitaph, his, his last words, or what will be inscribed on his gravestone or something of, of the sorts. It's marked in the score schwer, which means heavy, painful, played by the low brass. come to the final moments of this piece. We've gone through this incredible musical journey, this this journey that has beaten us down so many times. You know, kind of desperately, desperately tragic journey. And we get to the end and it's if you've made it to the end of this podcast, I applaud you because this is a long one, just like I applaud you if you make it to the end of the symphony. And you hear, you feel like you know exactly what you're expecting, and actually you don't get it. And I won't spoil it, but all I'll say is don't be startled, because out of nowhere we hear something very, very, very loud. And if you've made it to the end of this podcast, you will be one of the few people in the know who, if you see this piece live, will not jump out of your chair and almost scream out of, (laughs) like, being scared by how loud this is, being startled. And it's excellent if you're able to avoid that because it's, like, the most poignant moment of the piece, and I've seen so many live performances where this happens and people freak out because it's so startling. So you are one of the few uh, enlightened ones now who will know I'm not going to jump out of my chair when when this moment happens. Let's let's hear the moment in, in question, the very end of this symphony. It's an incredible, incredible end to the symphony, and I'll point out why, because maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, doesn't matter either way, but we get that idea one last time, our rhythm, bum, 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 and what we expect is, but that's not actually what we get the only time in the symphony where we just get. A minor by itself. So this idea of hope has been totally vanquished and we're left purely with A minor, the one time in the symphony where we hear that figure, only A minor, no A major anymore. It's a stunning end to the piece, a startling end to the piece, but a stunning end to 
such a tragic piece. Any uh, kind of concluding last thoughts that you you have on this one, Hannah? This is you happen to get to join me for one of the most complicated pieces in the entire literature of classical music. One that, admittedly, even today, I, 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 I not to this is not to overstate my own abilities in any way. I'm I'm a professional musician, and so it's my job to grasp pieces. I feel there are very few pieces that I really, really struggle to grasp that still seem profound in a certain way, and this is absolutely one of them. I just struggle to wrap my head around the enormity of this piece. What's your uh, what are your what's your takeaway? Um, well that's certainly nice to hear because I think I have only dabbled with this piece when I went down the rabbit hole and then when I was uh, prepping for our little phone call today and so started listening to it basically for the first time today yeah. and as soon as I started around it's um, it's 7.40ish here Eastern Eastern Standard Time I started lo- uh, listening to it maybe around 4 o'clock today yeah. and as soon as I started it I was like oh no I'm not going to be able to grasp this yeah before we hop on the phone and had I not been at home I think I would have and had I been at work I would have looked up the last time our orchestra had played it because I don't know if you know this but I'm just curious like how often orchestras play this piece because like you said like uh Mahler was super indulgent sometimes and I was looking at my my Daniels that I do have with me at home, which is just a book that shows all the instrumentation for um, orchestral music. And there's like eight horns. Oh, yeah. Horns, Like the normal complement is four, so that's twice the complement. I just, I'm overwhelmed by Mahler, which is so cool, and I'm so excited to like continue to explore him for the next for my next 60, 70, 80, who knows how long I'm going to, well, if coronavirus gets me, who knows. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm just excited to, to be exploring something so vast and so um, studyable. Yeah. So it's... I've, really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed it. I've not said much. My tacos were great. But Excellent. I've really enjoyed this, yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed the tacos, enjoyed the piece. Yeah, this is a piece that's really infrequently performed, both both because of, there's three reasons. The, the forces required, the complexity of the piece, and really, quite honestly, how much of a downer and uh, pessimistic of a piece it is. It doesn't end triumphantly, it doesn't have an uh, uplifting takeaway, and so... All of those things, I think, lead to this piece not being performed nearly as much as a lot of the other Mahler symphonies. I have seen it several times, and I'll tell you, as I mentioned, I still struggle to grasp it. But that's the amazing thing about Mahler, is that I know there's something there that I'm potentially missing, and I'm going to continue to work to try to find it. With that, I'm wary... Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I just said, I just said, like, that's so cool that... But yeah, we all have things to continue to learn and explore in this in this genre. Exactly, I'm very wary of how long this has gone out on. So we're gonna wrap it right there. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Stay healthy. We're thinking of you, and uh, 
we will, I'll see you hopefully kind of soon. Yes, I hope to see you soon, Jacob. You stay healthy as well. All right. And talk to everybody soon. We will do the seventh symphony tomorrow. So keep an eye out for that.